If you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 37 today. We're going to finish up our series called Smoke from a Fire about our emotions. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about this illustration that our emotions are like smoke that gives indication that there may be something wrong going on inside of us. We talked about Jesus saying that what comes out of a man is not, uh, what goes into a man is not what defiles him. It what comes out of the man is because what comes out of him comes from his heart, comes from inside. And we've talked each week about that. And so um, at the beginning of this series and over the last few uh, days researching some more, I've looked into this concept of emotions and how many emotions are there? Now, I've never really tried to calculate that, but there are people, this is unsurprising, right? We live in a world where people want to count everything that have tried to count emotions. All right. And so um, I looked up, there were uh, Mark Batterson in his book, Whisper, gives three of the top kind of researchers counts on this, and it's interesting to me how wildly different they can be. One man says that you can encapsulate all emotions in eight, that there are eight emotions. Another researcher uh, group says that you can characterize them in 48. Well, that's a little bit different, right? And a final one says that you can calculate them in 412. When I started this series, I thought, I'll just take every emotion and we'll do every emotion. I don't think a 412-week sermon series would be advisable. And all God's people said, amen. All right, that's the hardiest amen I'll get today, I know. Over the last few weeks, we have taken them, though, and we've talked about anger, and we've talked about confusion and depression and shame, and not just shame for what you've done, although there's definitely shame from that, but shame also from what is done to you or the situation you find yourself in in life. And there's going to be some overlap when you get into these emotions, especially today when we talk about where we are and how sometimes we wish we weren't where we are. And kind of the understanding through all of this time is that emotions are things that sometimes just develop in our lives and we can't always control having the emotion. What we can control is how we handle the emotion once it's there. Or as Nancy Ann Smith says, I saw this quote this week that said, you are responsible for what you do with your feelings or emotions, but can't help having them. Feelings are. We're going to have these emotions. All of us in our lives are going to experience anger and confusion and sadness and shame and envy that we're going to talk about today. You... You can't avoid having them. It reminds me a little bit of Billy Graham's quote about temptation and sin. He says, you can't stop temptation from coming into your life, but you can determine how you handle it when it does. He compared it to, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest. Like the idea is you can't control that something's going to happen and you're going to immediately react. Now, hopefully as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, our reactions are less in those moments than they maybe were previously. But in those moments, you can't necessarily control the emotion that you feel. But what you do with those is what's important. Today we're going to end our series, not with, it's definitely not a comprehensive series on all of the emotions, even if you go with that lowest number of eight. We're going to talk about an emotion I think we all experience, 
and maybe downplay the importance of it in our lives. We're going to talk today about envy. Psalm 37 verse 1 says this. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. Now when you look at the Psalms in particular, oftentimes the first verse is going to be a description of what the rest of the Psalm is about. It's almost like a title that happens And so what happens here is David is saying, I'm going to give you, this is a psalm of David, I'm going to give you a psalm about envy. Now, today we are not going to read all 40 verses. I'm going to pick some verses out of the midst of it, but the themes run throughout it. And he says an important part of our lives as David is thinking about, walking through what this particular psalm is going to be about, is that we cannot be envious people. I guess the first question we need to ask today is, what do we mean by envy? Well, in its simplest definition, envy is wanting what you do not have. It's looking at someone that has something or something that you see or some position in life or some place that you want to be and wishing you had that when you don't. As it kind of develops in our lives, oftentimes it turns into a, a, a thing where we think, well, it's because I deserve more, or haven't I put in enough work, or haven't I done this, or why can't I have? We're owed more. Sometimes we turn that even towards the Lord, right? The Lord owes me more. And what often happens is that envy can start as discontent, And then as it moves from discontent, it moves to this resentment. To where you go from not only when I wish I had that, to I don't like anybody that has it. That I become upset with them. What's interesting is, I read this week a great comparison, I thought, that envy is the opposite of the verse that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. By the way, it's 2020. I'm ready for the rejoicing part a little bit. Amen. Feel like we're doing a lot of mourning with people that mourn, a lot of that kind of stuff. I would love some rejoicing. Envy, instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn, weeps over those who are rejoicing and rejoices over those who are weeping. The Germans have a word kind of for this feeling where what is happening to somebody else either gives you pain or gives you joy. And I'm not going to pronounce it correctly because it's German and I don't speak German. You've probably heard something around it. It's Schadenfreude, right? I don't know why I think I have to do an accent when I do that, but I do. Just German words. I don't, you know, it's not like I try to speak French or any of that. Schadenfreude. That doesn't sound right in Southern English, all right? And it means pain joy, or your joy brings me pain, or your pain brings me joy. So at its root, envy is this looking at what somebody else has and wanting that or feeling bad about them or you because you don't have it. And it comes in the various forms, different ways. There's always, it always kind of centers out of this idea of comparison. And so there's material comparison. Somebody gets a new vehicle and you go out to yours and you're wondering why it's, it's catching when it makes a transition or you look down at that hole that's been there or that mark that's been there and then you get in somebody's brand new vehicle and you're like, 
man, I would love to have this. Or you, uh, you get to see a picture up of somebody's, you know, got, got, you know, on Instagram, they got their brownies and they're showing off their brownies. You're not even looking at the brownies. You're looking at the countertops and the knobs on it and the new paint job and what they did. And you're like, man, I hate those brownies. Right? Or you're at home on a rainy day and somebody posts a picture of them at their new beach condo or lake house. And you're like, man, I want one of those. There's also circumstantial comparison. You look at somebody else's situation and you're like, man, I wish I had that. I wish that was me. Must be nice. They always seem to get the breaks. They always seem to get the luck. They always seem to have what I wish I had. They're always in the right circumstance. Sometimes this kind of stuff crops up in weird places. Part of our fall break this week, my family and I, we went to Dollywood. Paid Dolly's visit there. Paid her. She wasn't there, but I'm, I'm sure she was there. She just missed us somewhere. Went around. And one of the things about being at amusement parks, lately they have all this stuff where, you know, you can buy extra stuff. And one of the things you can buy extra of at Dollywood is what they call the Time Saver Pass. And it's not like when you go to some other amusement parks and nobody knows you have it because it's on a big lanyard you ride around your neck. And I remember in the middle of the afternoon we were waiting in a ride. We'd been waiting in the ride for about 45 minutes to an hour. And we got near the front and somebody just walked in from the side with that little badge on and walked right up to the front of the line. And you're like, mm-mm. Right? Must be nice. Now, to tell you the full end of that story, right before we were going to leave the park, somebody gave us one of those and we marched around proudly with our time saver. Uh-huh, see, that y'all go to the common folk line. We're in the time saver. It's funny how the shoe turns quickly. Sometimes there's relational comparison. There are gatherings that people post or you hear about or see and you weren't invited. Maybe there's a relationship you wish you had. Maybe you're unmarried and you wish that was it. Or maybe you're married but you don't have a child and that's something that you want. Or maybe it's just um, your, your mom and dad are, are not together anymore. And you see pictures of families, all oh, their perfect Christmas card. And like they get to spend all of this time. Or on Christmas Day, everybody posts these huge pictures, of all 75 of them that are joined together. And it's you and a couple of people at the house. And here's the thing about comparison. It is a huge problem in our day because we see more of people's lives than we've ever seen. We joke around here sometimes that it always seems like somebody from our church is at Disney World. That may have been true for all time, but nobody just knew about it. Now we see the pictures. We know. And the problem with that, as we all know, is that what happens in our lives is that we compare our behind-the-scenes footage with their highlight reels. We think about, well, man, our day, like last time we went to Disney, we didn't have a time to get together as a family, or we can't afford to go down there. We couldn't do that. I would never, and we begin to compare. And study after study after study has shown us that the more we compare ourselves to other people, the less satisfied we've become. There was a study at a college university where they forced people to um, students to look at Facebook feeds, um, not even their own feed, somebody else's feed, uh, for 30 minutes a day and then an hour a day. 
And what they found was the longer they spent on Facebook, the less satisfied they were with their lives. I want to tell you, the more time I spend on Facebook, the less satisfied I am with everybody's lives. And here's the thing. Envy surrounds us, and it's a part of us, and many of us don't realize how big of an issue it is. Jonathan Edwards says, Never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. It's a big deal. One of my favorite stories in Scripture until it becomes really convicting. You ever have those stories in Scripture that you read them and you're like, man, that's a great story. And then you understand, man, that's talking to me. Happens over in Numbers 11. You've got your Bibles open or you've got your phone apps open. Turn with me to Numbers 11 just for a minute. I want to show you what happens when envy takes root in our soul and how God reacts to it before we come back to 37 and talk about how to deal with them. Chapter 11 of Numbers, just to give you kind of an insight, the children of Israel have been rescued from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. They have come to the Red Sea. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have gotten the Ten Commandments. They are wandering in the wilderness already because of the mistakes that were been made. And so they know that God is going to provide for them. And He starts to provide for them every day. How does He provide for them every day? He gives them manna, right? In the Hebrew, the literal word for that, he gives them what is it, all right? And so it describes a little bit of that here in chapter 11. We're not going to read that particular part. But in chapter 11, starting in verse 4, it says, The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. First of all, I love that the Christian Standard Bible, the version that I'm reading from, perhaps your version has a different word. I love that they took literally and said that that phrase there that is translated of, of a large group of people that are upset, they just called them the riffraff. And it says the riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. So get the picture here. They're in the wilderness. Every day they wake up, they don't have to worry about their food supply at all. They don't have to harvest it other than to go out and pick it up. They don't have to plant. Or they don't have to do anything. God gives them that to be able to be mobile and to move around and to have a transitory kind of life. But every morning they go out, they pick up their food, they bring it in, they eat it. And while we find out from Scripture, it may not have been like the best delicacy you could find. It was filling and good for them. And yet the riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. This keeps on. The Israelites wept again and again. Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish. Isn't that funny? What, what, where did they get the free fish? In Egypt. Why did they get free fish in Egypt? They were slaves. We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Man, we want that food. It goes on to say this. But now our appetite is gone There's nothing to look at but this manna. Now here's what's interesting. That phrase, our appetite is gone, when you look at the original language, what it actually says is, our souls have dried up. A little melodramatic. Anybody have any dramas, people in your household? Don't point, please, don't point, all right? A little melodramatic. Not not just, man, we're, we don't like this food anymore. It's like, our souls have withered. 
Because we don't have any meat. This is the reaction from Moses. Moses heard the people. Family after family weeping at the entrance of their tents. The Lord was very angry. How angry was he? Very angry. Moses was also, I love this word, provoked. That's not good. Moses gets so mad. A few verses later, this is what he says to God. If you go to the next one. Moses said, they are too much for me, these people. If you're going to treat me like this, just kill me right now. It'd be better for me to die right now, God, than to have to live these people one day more. And don't let me see my misery anymore. So I just want you to get a picture here of what's happening. God is giving them food every single day. They don't have to work for or plant or harvest. They're upset because they don't have the kind of food that they want that they had while they were slaves in Egypt. They're complaining so much that Moses says, I want to die. Melodramatic again. God, if I'm going to have to deal with this every day, just take me now. I almost imagine God in heaven going, are you kidding me? Right? I love how God responds, however. Tell the people. So he tells them to get together a group. This is a little bit later in the, in the chapter. He says, get together a group of some elders and tell them to come meet with me. And this is what I'm going to tell you. Consecrate yourselves and ready for tomorrow. And you will eat meat because you wept in the Lord's hearing. Who will feed us meat? We were better off in Egypt. Now, right here you think, okay, they're... God has relented. God is giving them what they want. They're, they're weeping and gnashing of teeth and melodramatic and overly dramatic cries have been heard by the Lord. He's going to help them. But then look what he says next. The Lord will give you meat and you will eat. It's one of the most parent-sounding times in Scripture from God. Right? You will eat, not for one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you. I don't know why, but I like that a lot. Right? I think I like it more as a parent than I did when I wasn't a parent. But you, like, you want meat? Then you're going to have meat. But you're not going to get little meat. You're going to get all you want. It's going to be all you want to the point you're not going to want any more. And it's going to be coming out of your noses. And you're going to be like, please stop giving me meat. And then he gives them the reason. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and wept before him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? Here's what I want you to see out of this passage, all right? We often think of envy as that little part of us that we know is not good, but it's not that bad. So what if I'd like to have a new car and I think about it a lot? Or so what if I get a little upset when somebody gets something that is good for them and I wish that I had it? And, you know, this happens not only, I mean, this happens in your workplace, it happens in your family, it happens in your relationships, it happens between brothers and sisters, sometimes it happens between husbands and wives, it happens between churches, between pastors, between ministers, between co-workers, where people get elevated and you're like, man, I really wish that was me, and you get upset about it, or something good happens and you wish that it hadn't. What's the big deal? Well, in Scripture, it's pretty obvious that God is furious about it with these people, right? What is their sin here? It's that they wanted more than God had given them. They envied their life 
in Egypt. They desired their life in Egypt. And this wasn't something that God hadn't told them he'd get upset about. Like it's in the top ten. You know what I'm talking about, right? What's the tenth commandment? Do not covet. There are some people that say God bookends the commandments with one. Have no other gods before me that I am enough for you with number ten, which is do not want anything I don't give you because what I have given you is enough for you. And so he looks at them and he says, you have infuriated me and I'll give you meat, but I'll give you meat till you're sick of it so that you understand this is not an issue of what food you have. This is an issue of where your heart is before me. And the reason God is furious about it is because envy in our life first forgets the goodness of God in our past. They literally forgot that God brought them out of slavery. They are being nostalgic about working so hard that the conditions were terrible in Egypt. They were having to make their own bricks to make a quota for the day and they could not fulfill it. And they are longing nostalgically for the days of slavery. Now, when we begin to look and say, God, why don't I have or why didn't you or what could I, why can't I have? We are forgetting the goodness of God in the past. He has brought them out of slavery. For you and for I, we sing about the cross so much. We talk about the resurrection of Christ so much. We talk about what he's done for us so much because it is our job and our duty to remember the goodness of what God has done for us. How he has rescued us from sin. How he has saved our souls. And when we begin to think about what we don't have, we are then forgetting what we do. It's not only that envy causes us to forget the goodness of God in the past. Envy overlooks the goodness of God now. They are literally having DoorDash manna every day. Right? And they don't have to pay an extra delivery fee. It's there. They wake up. They go out. They're like, oh, food's here for the day. Saturday, or actually Friday for them, we get a couple extra days. Take care of today and tomorrow. Yes, it's the same thing every day. But the other alternatives to manna being present every morning was for them to go find food for probably a couple of million people every day. When you think about the miraculous nature of what was happening here, one of the miracles in the New Testament that we just marvel over is that Jesus took, and it is miraculous and it is worth being marveling over, is when Jesus took some bread and some fish and created lunch for 5,000 people, right? God was providing breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for upwards of 2 million people. Every day. Listen, I don't know your circumstances and I don't know your financial situation. I don't know your relationship status. And there may be, and it has been a very difficult year for lots of people. And there are many of you in this room that are dealing with very difficult circumstances. That does not mean that God is still not good right now to you. And finally, the reason it's angering to God is because it ignores God's goodness promised for the future. Some glad morning, when his life is over, I'll fly away. Someday, someday, 
God's going to make everything right. And he's promised those of us that are his people that when he does, he will make it right for us. Completely. Holy. God's goodness is always present and will always be. We spent the first part of last week at um, in East Tennessee. We took family and we just got away for two or three days and it was great to be with family. We got back um, and had two funerals, on one on Thursday, one on Friday. For Mr. Maurice Fentress and Miss Elsie Ledbetter, both long-term members of this congregation. Now, Miss Elsie's funeral, for whatever reason, I was drawn to... John chapter 11, where Jesus' friend, Lazarus, dies. They come to him and tell him, hey, Jesus, your friend's about to die. And he says, okay, it'll be fine. I'll be there in time when it matters. And God gave him the perfect timing, and he arrives, and they said he's already dead. And there's a moment in there that I love this, because what happens in one statement is that Jesus reminds us of the goodness of God here and now and in the future. And so there's a moment in there where um, Mary and Martha are talking to him and they say, they both kind of say, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus says to Martha, hey, listen, if, if it's, you know that if I want him to be alive, he'll be alive. And she goes, I know, I know. And she says, in the last days, I know that you are, you know, that, that you'll bring about the resurrection. And Jesus basically looks at her and goes, no, not in the last days. I'm talking about now. I am the resurrection and the life. And the point Jesus makes in that moment is that we can trust the goodness of God here in the present and forevermore. And as Jesus envelops that moment with hope, it's reminiscent of the promises of God in the Old Testament to these people who he has told them he will take care of them and they should never doubt that. So back to Psalm 37. We see that envy is something that is serious in Scripture. It's taken seriously in Scripture. It is something that we need to take seriously in our lives and that we never underestimate the power of envy in our lives. But the question is, how do we combat it? Now again, I'm not going to read all of Psalm 37. I'm going to jump around a little bit. And so um, those verses won't be on the screen because I'm going to jump around. And so if you're, if you're looking with me in your Bibles or if you, just want, if you don't have that open right now and you want to write it down or you're on your app, then I'll give you where I'm going. Three things that we do to combat envy in our lives. And the first thing that we do is, and all of these start with trust, we trust God's goodness. Now, here's the thing. It starts with trust because faith is required when we're in situations where it would be easy to compare and contrast our lives and see how other people are doing seemingly better than us. We have to trust in those moments, have faith in that moment, in the goodness of God. Psalm 37 verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. The idea there is trust in the goodness of God. He has just told us in verse 1, don't be envious of those who do wrong, though wither, trust the Lord is good. If you look at verses 18 and 19, it says the Lord watches 
over the blameless all their days and their inheritance will last forever. They will not be disgraced in times of adversity. They will be satisfied in the days of hunger. He says, trust in the goodness of God. I will take care of you both now and forevermore. There is an inheritance that will last forever, but yet I will satisfy you even in your lowest points. Trust in me. And then verses in verse 23. But the Lord is going to take pleasure in his way and he is establishing our steps. The idea is that God's going to take care of us. Secondly, not only do we trust in the goodness of God, we trust in the timing of God. There are a couple of themes that we find throughout verse or Psalm 37, chapter 37 of Psalms, where we have God being told or telling us to wait expectantly on Him. Verse 7 and ver- through verse 9 says, Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly on Him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in His way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give it up to rage. Do not be agitated. For the evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. David is saying, as he's looking out, he's trusting, he's being not going to be envious. He says, the way we're not envious is we trust that the Lord's timing is perfect. And we trust Him to do it. We trust in the goodness of God. We trust in the timing of God. And finally, we trust in God's ways. The overall theme of chapter 37 of the 37th Psalm is simply this. Trust God enough to live how he's called you to live, even when it seems that it's not working out for you. Verse 4 and 5 say, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Those are promises from the Lord. That if we commit our way to the Lord, He will act. And it may not be in the exact way that we want. It may not be the way that we think it ought to happen immediately. But He will act. Psalm 37 verse 34 says it this way. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. And He will exalt you to inherit the land. He will watch when the wicked are destroyed. Wait for the Lord and keep His way couple of simple ways, just real practical, for us to combat envy in our lives. One is to read these psalms and to see how people struggled with envy in their own lives. To see how David struggled with it on a regular basis and then trust the Lord as he did. To read the psalms that we've even talked about over the last few weeks. Some of those would be just as appropriate for envy as they were for sadness or depression or for um, those times when we're angry with the Lord. Take time to read about, to reflect on, and to think about what God has done for us in the cross. His salvation that he has given us. Read about that. Pray about that. Seek the Lord in the midst of that. Lord, remind me again and again of what you've done for me. And then finally, just commit to follow the Lord no matter the circumstances of your life. To trust in Him. To trust in His goodness. 
and not on the things that the world tells us that we ought to trust in, but in his goodness and his goodness alone to carry us through. The last six months, seven months now, I guess, close to it, since all of this began to happen in the end of February, middle of March with the pandemic and things that have come along with that, for many of us in this room have been some of the most difficult months of our lives. And in the midst of that, sometimes it's been easy to look around and compare ourselves with how other people are handling the difficulties that are happening in life. And as we compare ourselves to be envious of not only of what might be out there right now, but to talk about, man, I just wish it would go back to like it was. In those moments, it's important for us to remember that God has been good, God is good, And God will be good all the days of our lives. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise be to God that he is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a good and righteous and faithful God. That you are a God that will always take care of those whom you love and are called according to your purpose. Lord, that you are working things together for our good even when... We cannot see or understand it, Lord, that you are doing that. And Lord, I come to you today as someone, Lord, that I confess often deals with envy in my own life. And pray, Lord, that you would remind me again of how good you have been to me, how good you are to me, and how good you will be to me. And Lord, that you will help me to find my satisfaction in you. We pray in this moment, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would give us wisdom and discernment about what you intend to do in our lives and how we can respond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.